Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Suspended animation as the world puts aside issues of inflation and earnings and Fed policy and even COVID for a week consumed with war in Ukraine. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, there was plenty going on, from the price of oil, as Dan Jurgen of IHS Market discussed. Some say we're going to have over $100 oil for much of the year. To what Jeffrey Yu of BNY Mellon says is the central bank's concern about inflation expectations becoming unanchored. This strikes at the heart of what central bankers are worried about right now, um, as in a de-anchoring of inflation expectations. But despite all that was happening around us, we spent the week focused on the geopolitical crisis in Ukraine, as President Putin recognized what purported to be independent republics in the eastern part of the country. The West imposed limited sanctions in response. I'm going to begin to impose sanctions in response far beyond the steps we and our allies and partners implemented in 2014. And then on Thursday, Russia did what the United States had been warning about. It launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine, triggering much broader sanctions from the West and plunging Europe into the largest armed conflict in decades. 
He has much larger ambitions in Ukraine. He wants to, in fact, reestablish the former Soviet Union. For her sense of where this crisis is headed, we turn now to Jane Harmon. She's president emerita of the Wilson Center, and she's the author of Insanity Defense, about foreign policy for the United States. Jane, thank you so much for being with us. What is your initial take? We have a lot of developments yet to come. But as of right now, where do you think this is unfolding? Well, let me say that the book you just plugged, thank you, David, for always doing that, makes the point that when the Cold War ended, we had no strategy for what the world would look like. We thought we won, Russia lost, and everybody wants to be us. Well, oops, we missed the rise of terrorism. We missed the rise of China, which doesn't want to be us. And we missed the sense of huge grievance that Vladimir Putin is now uh, uh, following through with by Russia which did lose, but unlike World War II, where we helped those we conquered uh, uh, become uh, allies and friends, Germany and Japan, this time we just rubbed Russia's nose in it. And so we're, we're now uh, paying a penalty for all three things. What do I think is going to happen? Uh, it looks uh, pretty certain that Putin has outgunned, outclassed uh, the, 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 the uh, fight of, of Ukrainians and in some way in the next few days, there'll be some bad resolution in Ukraine. I just hope that the courageous leader there, uh, Zelensky, who has shown so much fight and so much uh, bravery, unlike Ghani in Afghanistan, who escaped the, the country before it fell, uh, will uh, be safe. I hope he will be safe. Um, but I don't think this is where it stops. Uh, I think uh, the ambitions of, of Putin, maybe we should give him a red hat that says make Russia great again, uh, are way beyond this. And he's trying to take down the liberal world order that we formed after 1945 and take advantage of the fact that uh, there is still some disagreement among Europeans and European institutions and us. I commend President Biden for lashing us up to partners and allies and uh, doing with them everything that's doable. And I do think there will be more sanctions by all of them and us both on individuals and on uh, 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 banks and institutions. And those sanctions will bite. Uh, I don't want them to bite the Russian people. I really want them to bite uh, Putin and the kleptocrats who are doing this. Uh, Jane, you mentioned Afghanistan uh, in a more recent time, but let's go back a little bit to Afghanistan, because Russia went into Afghanistan at one point. They spent quite a few years in there, and it came to tears in the end. Do we have any yeah. sense, do you have any sense at this point, of the likelihood that, in fact, Russia will simply be able to make Ukraine a vassal state, and that's done with, or they could have a protracted conflict the way they did in Afghanistan? I think this could be even worse than Afghanistan. Um, I was on the Maidan, that's the square, in, in, uh, in Ukraine, in Kyiv, in 2014, looking at the little memorials that were put up to the, the folks who gave their lives to topple this Russian puppet, Yanukovych. And that led to free and fair elections, first of Poroshenko, who's there uh, in, in uh, Ukraine right now, strapping on his weapon, and then following him to uh, Zelensky. And so Ukraine has been a Western free democracy for seven plus years, even with Russian interference in the eastern part, the Donbass. And I don't think these folks are going away or giving up. And I think this is going to be an ugly story if, uh, if, if uh, Russia tries to occupy the country. And uh, I don't think Ukraine is going to surrender easily. And this is not going to be, just not uh, going to be a cakewalk for Russia. 
Jane, let me double back on something you said, that you thought that this one was not necessarily the end from President Putin's point of view of where he wants to go. That's something that certainly President Biden said this week. So how nervous does President Putin have to be about triggering that Article 5 of NATO if it goes into places like Poland, for example? Well, it's, it's interesting. Um, NATO has only invoked Article 5 once, and that was after 9-11. We didn't ask for it. Nick Burns, uh, this mutual friend of ours, David, who is going to represent us in China, was then the ambassador to NATO. And they didn't ask us. They just invoked Article 5 to come to our defense after 9-11. Um, since then, it's never been invoked, but... You're right. Uh, Poland is a NATO country. We're sending additional troops, and the, the whole uh, complement of NATO troops is increasing. Thank you so much, Jane. Really wonderful to have you with us. It's Jane Harmon. She's president emerita of the Wilson Center. When we come back, the market's response to the war in Ukraine with Kate Moore of BlackRock and Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater Associates. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Ukraine dominated a tumultuous week of trading with the S&P 500 falling into correction territory on Thursday only to climb back up 2.2% for the week. The Nasdaq was up also by 1.6% while the 10-year veered from a yield of under 1.85 to over 2.0 ending the week just under the 2.0 mark. And oil, oil of course, got hit the most by the uncertainty over Ukraine. Brent shot up to over $105 a barrel after news of the invasion hit on Thursday and then settled back down to 98 dollars a barrel when it appeared that sanctions wouldn't hit the energy sector as hard as was thought, at least for now. To help us understand the market reactions, welcome now Kate Moore. She's head of thematic strategies at BlackRock Financial Management and Rebecca Patterson, Bridgewater Director of Investment Research. So let me start with you, Rebecca. What about what happened with equities this week? It was all over the place. Well, you know, obviously we were all focused on the Ukraine and what was happening there, but um, I think it's important to remember that the markets are always being driven by a myriad of factors. Ukraine was front and center, but we also were in a period where we had a lot of buybacks going on. A lot of those tech companies that had sold off a lot probably benefited from that as we got into the end of the week. And of course, we're going into month-end rebalancing. And so that can also cause a lot of trading. So even when things are very whippy and, and you don't always say, how does this tie to the headlines with Ukraine? It's important to remember that there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes in addition to that. Obviously, that was the most important thing. And as you said, uh, the possibility that sanctions won't be as hard as they might be, at least for now, um, might have also helped us get a little bit of a reprieve towards the end of the week. Kate, I know you're very interested in resources companies. What happened with resources companies? Uh, we actually had a phenomenal week once again for resources companies. You know, in the U.S., the XME, which is the S&P 500 mining ETF, had a 10-year high. Uh, and globally, we've seen the same kind of thing across resources companies. You know, it has been a phenomenal rally driven by both good supply demand dynamics as well as some concern uh, over ongoing supply disruptions, particularly from the Russia-Ukraine situation. So uh, you have both the geopolitical and the fundamental side really backing up an incredibly strong rally in a sector, when you think about the miners in particular, that had been so unloved for so long. It was a place I played in in uh, many parts of my career. I had to dust off some of my playbooks and some of my skills there. 
One, one thing I'd add to what Kate just said on some of these resource companies is even before Ukraine and the threat to supplies that that implies, we already had a situation where demand obviously very, very strong with all the fiscal and monetary stimulus after COVID. But then on top of that, a lot of these sectors had seen underinvestment for years. So supplies were already somewhat low before we had this demand shock. And now we're in a situation where supplies aren't even close to what we need, uh, whether we're talking about oil, uh, with underinvestment both in the U.S. and by OPEC countries, whether we're talking about a lot of crops, we've seen underinvestment the last couple of years, partly a weather situation, but supplies very low, and in the metals. And so demand is improving after Omicron starting to fade. Hopefully the Ukraine situation won't dent that too much. So you have strong demand and these supplies that can't keep up, and this just creates an additional risk on supply. So I think to Kate's point, some of these companies look like a good inflation hedge, and they're also just in a great position to benefit from that increased demand. Yeah, and I would add on to something else Rebecca's saying, which is in addition to what's happening in the very near term around supply demand, there's also a longer term demand story. A lot of these miners produce metals that are actually incredibly important for the energy transition and for electric vehicles. And we're seeing them undersupplied in the market. We've also seen like some uh, metals like aluminum, for example, or some resources like aluminum. Um, you know, have kind of a bit of a backlash against, you know, how some of the, uh, that is produced. And so aluminum producers that use natural gas or cleaner energy to produce uh, are coming into favor. It is a place where I think we'll see continued uh, support for prices over the medium term. Rebecca, this is a geopolitical crisis with a specific location, which is Europe. And we saw at various times this week, a really different reaction in the markets, depending on Europe versus the United States. Do you think that will persist? Unfortunately, I do. I, you know, we, we don't know the duration or the degree of the Ukraine crisis, and, and so obviously that matters. But even if there aren't the worst possible sanctions on energy, they want to get the energy flows to Europe, a third of Russian's oil exports go through the Ukraine. So if you have a situation where they can't get the flows through, you're going to see higher prices no matter what's going on with the sanctions. So what Europe's seen is greater risk of what I'd call a stagflationary shock, where inflation, which is already more than double the ECB, the European Central bank's target is going higher, and at the same time, growth is going lower. Part of it is a sentiment shock, but part of it is the inflation eroding people's disposable income. They just have le less to spend. So the good news is that going into this shock, growth was improving. So they're starting from a strong place. The question is, how far does this pull them back? And then how does the European Central Bank respond, more to growth or more to the inflation? They're in a really difficult position. Kate, I wonder about Europe in general, because before this all happened, and there were those who were saying this was going to be the year for Europe. Finally, we're going to have the year for Europe because valuations were very attractive. There was going to be better growth. Does this change that dynamic or did you believe in it to begin with? Yeah, David, I never believed in it to begin with. And I think those folks that work with me know that, well, let's not call myself a Eurosceptic, but someone who doesn't believe that buying European index exposure makes sense in most scenarios. When you buy Europe, you get a lot of exposure to what I would consider lower quality, lower growth companies, a big exposure to the banks, big exposure to some you know companies that I would think of um, as having more stagnant business models and don't have kind of dynamic flow. So... It was not something I was really excited about to begin with. And I think one of the things that's not fully priced into European equities right now is the extent to which, the, which this Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, could bleed through into European growth. 
I think it's incredibly important to be selective in your European investments at this point. There are plenty of great high quality companies that are not just going to be geared towards domestic growth. And I think that's where we need to focus our attention when we think about exposure to the region. One thing I'd add to your point, Kate, if we're looking for catalysts that could affect our outlook on growth in Europe would be what happens fiscally. So Europe is getting its act together this year. They're all talking about what should our fiscal framework be, their fiscal policy. Right now they're set to start imposing their old policies, pre-pandemic policies next year. But Mm -hmm. they may decide because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict to give another extension. So letting governments spend a little bit longer, not putting that austerity straitjacket back on. If they do that, that could be another support to growth that I don't think is discounted in prices right now. We should know that around mid-year. So in addition to what the European Central Bank does, how they respond, this would be another important catalyst that I think could affect views. Again, I agree with you, Kate, certain stocks more than others. Many thanks now to Kate Moore of BlackRock and Rebecca Patterson of Bridgewater Associates, Director of Investment Research. Coming up, Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute on the China piece of the puzzle. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week. And we are on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. China. It's been the economic success story of the last half century, as GDP and per capita GDP have gone up faster than any economy in history. But now some people see some problems developing, whether it's the struggling property sector flagged by investors like George Soros. China is facing an economic crisis centered on the real estate market, which has been the main engine of growth 
ever since Xi Jinping came to power. Or the policy of zero tolerance for COVID that experts like Amish Adalja of Johns Hopkins find just plain wrong. COVID zero was wrong from the beginning. If someone wrote that on a, an essay question on a test, I would say that's a wrong answer uh, to how you deal with this type of uh, a virus. Factors that lead our special Wall Street Week contributor Larry Summers to suggest we may be overestimating China's economic strength and underestimating its problems. Consider the possibility that we may be underestimating uh, China's uh, challenges now. And we need to be particularly careful about being overly provocative uh, to them. And for more on China, we're going to turn now to, I'll call her our resident expert on China. She's Deborah Lair. She is the CEO of Edelman Global Advisory, as well as the executive director of the Paulson Institute. Welcome back to Wall Street Week. Good to have you here. Very delighted. So you understand uh, President Xi and China better than most Americans do. Give us a sense of how he looks at this year going into 2022. Well, this is a really important year for Xi Jinping for many different reasons. It's, he started his reselection campaign leading up to a potential third term as president. He is still managing the economy coming out of COVID. He is facing the big question of how to reopen after this zero tolerance policy and COVID lockdown. And now his new friend, uh, Vladimir Putin, has put him in a very difficult position as he has to choose between the relationship with Russia and the relationship still with the West, and particularly the United States. So what about that relationship? We saw the two of them together at the beginning of the Winter Olympics, sort of pledging their troth, if I can put it that way. They're really supporting one another. At the same time, often people who are autocratic don't like violations of boundaries. And now we have Russia invading Ukraine. What is China's position here? And to what extent will they help Russia out by buying things like oil and wheat? Great. Well, you know, it, it's, I guess, a certain irony that it's the 50th year to celebrate Nixon's uh, kind of visit to China and the reopening of the relationship, which was really driven um, as a way to counterbalance Russia. And we're now back in looking at this triangle. Uh, Russia's move has put Xi Jinping in a very difficult position because traditionally the Chinese position is not to violate national sovereignty. On the other hand, Vladimir Putin is making certain arguments about a historical legacy that resonate for China when it comes to its position on Taiwan. But China is still very dependent on the West. Looking ahead at the economy, you know, we've, we've talked a lot and there's been a lot of discussion about what the impact of COVID and the lockdown has been on the Chinese economy. The what reality, has it been? Has it really it, hurt them badly? Well, as we've looked really at some of the fundamentals, not as much as you would be led to believe that the real drags on the economy have been a tight monetary policy. They have been the lack of semiconductor chips because of U.S. sanctions and the energy shortage. She has been starting to address all of that. They're looking at ramping up monetary policy with a stimulus program in this first quarter because that will start to hit come October, November, just as he is standing for his reselection. But also he's been addressing the energy shortage. Looking at what's going to happen with Russia, China just signed long-term contracts when Vladimir Putin was there in early February at the start of the Olympics for wheat, where Russia and the Ukraine are some of the largest growers, and for oil. But if the oil prices go up to, you know, they're already hitting 100, 150, people are speculating even 200, this is going to have a significant impact 
on the Chinese economy and their ability to maintain even what we speculate will be a 5% goal of growth this year. What about the growth level? Because China has really been an engine for growth globally, not just within China, but globally. It is slowing down some. How badly is it slowing down? Well, if you look at last year and you talk about the effect of COVID, Putting aside kind of this, these, these talks of the lockdown and the supply chain, if you look at the numbers, it's unbelievable. They had an absolute banner year when it came to production and when it came to exports. So the supply chain kind of holdups weren't necessarily from China, except in some isolated cases when they did close down a port for a COVID scare or something like that. They really were an engine of growth with the rest of the world. Now. This is going to be a, a supply shock to the rest of the world, and what Russia has done is going to have an impact on global growth, and that is definitely going to hit China because they still are dependent on these export markets. Okay, thank you so much, Deborah. That's Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and we're joined once again by our very special contributor for Wall Street Week. He is Dr. Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, it's good to see you again. This has been a rough week, I think it's fair to say. The big event of the week was that full-scale invasion, the likes of which we haven't seen since World War II, of Russia into Ukraine. What are your thoughts overall on what we've seen this week? From the perspective of six months ago, this is a shock from the perspective of what had been unfolding and what U.S. intelligence had been telling us, um, it wasn't that surprising when it came. But make no mistake, uh, I think there's a real chance that this is going to be one of those moments like January 6th, like 9-11, like November 22nd, that echoes uh, through uh, history, that this kind of naked aggression could take place in uh, Europe, that there could be the kind of emerging alliance that we have seen between Russia and China at uh, the same time means that we are in a very different world than many of us had uh, thought we were headed into. The United States faces far graver challenges uh, to its security than anyone would have uh, thought likely uh, even uh, several years ago. And that's gonna have ramifications or needs to have ramifications for almost every aspect of uh, our national life. History has not ended. We are engaged in the kind of struggle that Lincoln uh, spoke of, about whether government by the people, for the people, can long endure. That is a challenge domestically. That is a challenge globally and Anyone who thinks that it is not a challenge to their ability to flourish and profit as a business is making an enormous mistake. Because if we lose this 
uh, struggle. It is not only our freedom and our security, but our prosperity that will be at peril. The thoughts of all of us, I'm sure, are first with the men, women, and yes, children in Ukraine and what they are going through right now. Uh, and also the issues of the world order that you're raising, which are very profound. At the same time, this could have as well some profound economic consequences, particularly in a world in the United States, particularly where we have a fair amount of inflation. What do you think the economic implications of this geopolitical crisis could be? David, it's not going to be good. Um, the direction is stagflationary. The direction is both to raise prices, we're seeing that in oil and energy and other commodity markets. The direction is also to um, reduce, uh, reduce the level of demand and spending as those price increases uh, sap uh, purchasing uh, power. So the very difficult job that the Fed had already made for itself uh, by falling so far behind uh, the curve has become that much more difficult with uh, what we have seen. The danger is that team transitory will morph into team, it's a supply shock caused by oil, and find further excuse to avoid taking the necessary steps to uh, contain inflation, and therefore postpone the ultimate uh, reckoning and make more serious what is what needs to be done uh, to uh, contain uh, inflation. The argument will be made that we can't afford restrictive uh, policies. The problem is that we also can't afford an entirely unsustainable economic path that will ultimately set the stage for more economic distress, more pain, and more uh, reduction in employment for the most vulnerable uh, people uh, in our society. This is a very serious uh, moment, and it's a moment when policymakers have great responsibility to do things that are not easy. Uh, Larry, I don't know if he's team transitory or not, but uh, a respected economist, I know you respect him, a former classmate of yours, Paul Krugman, weighed in on the inflation question, at least one aspect of it this week in the New York Times, where he essentially, if I can summarize it, took issues with what he called sort of technocrats who were distancing themselves from the Biden administration by criticizing some of the politically popular uh, things that have been suggested, such as, for example, suspending the tax on gasoline, something you commented on last week on this program. I got a reaction from you I saw on Twitter. Paul's a brilliant guy, but on this, I think he is way off base. We would not be where we are if many of the economists who saw inflationary danger last summer had been prepared to speak up and express uh, their uh, concerns. By giving air to the bogus view 
that inflation has something to do with greed, distinguished economists are delaying the moment at which it will be confronted in a serious uh, way. I am not worried about independent economists speaking their mind when they're out of government rather than maintaining some kind of loyalty to a political uh, viewpoint. I am worried about columnists who choose to use their influence as distinguished economists only to reinforce the prejudices and instincts of a particular political constituency. That, I think, is a much greater uh, danger. Paul Krugman is the world's most distinguished international uh, economist. Let's hear his views opposing protectionism. Let's hear his views recognizing the importance of international interconnection in holding down uh, prices. Let's hear, hi let's hear him uh, be prepared to challenge policy approaches that almost all economists recognize are misguided. So, Larry, let's take a moment here at the end to look forward to next week. We're going to have the first real State of the Union address from President Biden on Tuesday evening. That's always an important and, yes, challenging speech for a president. It's going to be particularly so, I suspect, this year, given what you've just been saying about inflation, but also the war in Ukraine. What would you like to hear from President Biden on Tuesday? You know, I think there are things that are more important than the usual laundry list of uh, policy proposals. I'm hoping to see a real change in tone from the president. At a certain point, President Roosevelt shifted from being the end the depression president to being the win the war president. President Biden needs to shift from being the protect the middle class from the pandemic president to being prepare America for the struggle ahead of president. We don't need a middle class foreign policy now. We need a safe and secure world uh, policy uh, now. We don't need efforts to provide particular tax cuts or particular benefits to particular constituencies. We need a return to the spirit of President Kennedy, who at a moment when the country was challenged, asked America not what their country could do for them, but what they could do for their country. And so I hope that President Biden will recognize the gravity of uh, the moment, will signal the necessary uh, pivot given what is happening in Russia, what is happening in China, what is happening to the two of them together, and what is happening to our own democracy. Our own democracy, when a former president, just 14 months, 13 months uh, out of office, 
is calling the leader of a country who launches a world war a genius. That is a grave threat and it points to a kind of polarization in our society that the president needs to uh, address. That doesn't mean particular issues about particular aspects of the way registration rules work in particular states. It means the broad character of our democracy. Important moment. Well said. Thank you very much to Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. And this is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.